Hey, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. You know, while uh, people are turning their bow, uh, yeah. I, I, was, uh, as I was doing uh, my studying for this uh, passage uh, earlier. It uh, brought back memories of my first primitive attempts at skateboarding, <laughs> which I know is something you can relate to. Yeah. Uh, sidewalk surfing, that whole thing. Uh, and, and when I started skateboarding, it wasn't like today where they've got, you know, the nice composite wheels and everything like that. They had these kind of clay wheels mm -hmm. on the skateboards. And uh, you really couldn't do a lot of tricks on them or anything else. Uh, our deal was to see how far high up on a hill we could get and make the corner. That was pretty much what we do uh, with as little personal damage as possible. But the thing about these skateboards is you'd be going downhill and, and, and the sidewalks were easier to go on than the, the pavement and they were smoother. But if there was a little tiny chalk rock on the sidewalk, no matter how fast you were going, man, you'd be going like 30 miles an hour and you'd go from 30 to zero as soon as you hit that chalk rock. And, and, and you know, like Sir Isaac Newton taught us, objects in motion tend to stay in motion. So uh, you'd get thrown off into the pavement and your parents would look at you like, you know. <laughs> uh, now I know why tigers eat their young. But uh, the reason I, I, I was reminded of this was, you know, I think there's some scriptures that we run into that, that strike me like chalk rock scriptures. You know, you're cruising along, you're gaining speed, you're having a lot of fun, and then suddenly, it just kind of stops you. And, uh, you know, Psalm 139, I think, fits that description. It's like a, a favorite scripture of so many people, uh, and, and it's beautiful. Uh, verse 15, David says, for instance, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. And you know, you're cruising along, you're thinking, oh, the goodness of God, and he knows us, and he loves us. And then this next line, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. <laughs> you know, I mean, just come to this screeching halt where David gets real about how he feels about his enemy. This is an example. Uh, the highfalutin term is an imprecatory psalm where the psalmist would talk about what he wanted to see happen to his enemies. And there are those who are like, wow, you know, how did that ever make it in the Bible? You know, the uh, angel editing the Bible must have been falling asleep at the switch when that one made it in. But the whole subject of God's judgment on the wicked and the fine art of letting God do what he does best, and that is judge people, and not getting caught up in that. Boy, it's a fine art. In, in this world, isn't it? Uh, you know, when we're worried, I, I read earlier today, it's because we don't think God is going to do the right thing. You know, when we're anxious, uh, when we're bitter, it's because we don't think that God is going to judge people properly. And God wants us to know that when he judges, 
when he responds to judgment, uh, he does it right, and, and he does it very thoroughly. And, and in Revelation chapter 9, I think we're going to see a, a vivid picture of that. You know, you really can't understand what we're getting into here, especially in this section of the book of Revelation, I believe, without going back to uh, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9, where it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, were completed. In other words, what God was saying is, look, I hear you. I understand your call for judgment here, and it's a righteous one. Uh, these people had been persecuted. Their lives had been taken unjustly from the earth by wicked men. But it was not yet time to judge. They'd have to wait a little while longer. But in Revelation 9, wouldn't you say the waiting's over? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Revelation 9 is, is uh, man, incredible. It's just an amazing chapter because, you know, everything just gets really revved up to this fever pitch at this point in the, in the tribulation period. You know, I, I think a lot of people have a problem, like when they have problems with uh, the precatory psalms or this kind of literature, apocalyptic literature like this. You know, the, the, the issue that people have is, well, God is not just. Like, how can he be a loving God and do the things that he's doing? The things we'll see tonight. The things we'll see tonight. And it's so funny because being raised not a Christian, I've always, I always found it really comforting to read the Bible and realize that God is going to judge the world. Like that was a very comforting thought to me coming from a more secular, progressive, you know, Southern California background. Because you'd seen how wicked people can be. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I thought, I, you know, in my perspective, I thought, you know, I already know that there's something wrong with me. I already know. See, a person who looks at these passages and goes like, you know, uh, God's, God's not just. They don't know two things. They don't know the holiness of God. They are super, that's a, an absent idea from their mind. And they don't know the depravity of human beings. Those are two things that if you have a problem with this kind of literature, that's probably what's happening. Yeah. And, and it affects your whole perspective. That's right. You tend, and then, you know, you're looking at these passages in a very self-righteous way. Like, you know, why is God doing this? Like, why would God do this to the world? Look at the world. Look how good we are as human beings. Right? Yeah. And we, you know, we really are good people. Yeah. We really have everybody's well-being in mind. Sure. <laughs> if you believe that, <laughs> I, I want to talk to you about a land purchase right, after but, the service. But many people, they, that's, their, that's their thing. Yeah. But it's so interesting that even in the intensity of judgment, and if you were with us in Revelation chapter 9, you know, we see in a sense, uh, it was really beautiful the way uh, Sean brought this up uh, last week, that what we're seeing is like a parallel with the plagues of Egypt when Pharaoh kept hardening his heart and wouldn't let the people go. 
why 10 plagues in Egypt? Why didn't God just go, I know what this guy's going to do. I got a lightning bolt with his name on it. Let's just nuke him, and then the people are going to go. But there was this, this uh, intensity, increasing series of judgments on everything that the Egyptians put their faith and trust in yeah. that was less than God. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the people leave uh, at the end of all of this. And in a really uh, strange way, even as intense as we've seen, the abuso, the abyss, the bottomless pit yeah. being opened, these uh, demonic scorpion-like creatures were able to sting men, and uh, they're, uh, they afflict them for five months in such agony that they want to die, and yet death flees from them. They can't kill themselves, but they can't find any uh, relief from their pain. Mm. Uh, you know, we look at that and go, well, where in the world is mercy here? Well, we saw mercy in the current world that we're in, in that, boy, you look at this, and this angel of the bottomless pit comes down and opens this thing up. That tells me something. It's sealed right now. You know, we think this world's pretty bad sometimes. We ain't seen nothing yet. You know, God keeps a seal. He keeps a lid on evil, and sometimes I think we take that for granted. But we see what happens when God says, all right, you know, you want to worship these demonic creatures. You mm -hmm. want to think you can play ball with Satan and the wicked one. I'll show you exactly who you're dealing with here. And, uh, and it's interesting that these awful satanic creatures, and we see that Satan's real agenda, no matter how much he tries to gussy it up and get us to believe that, you know, he's really on our side and, oh, that mean creator God, he's just holding out on you and so forth. Uh, you know, he is always there to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, he doesn't let these demonic creatures kill, but he does let them do a lot of destruction. Yeah, yeah and, and we'll, see, we'll see a little bit of that restraining work that still is going on, and then we're going to see it uh, again um, uh, no longer being restrained right. in this section when the sixth angel sounds. Right. And, and we also just have to remember that from the biblical perspective, there is a world that is alive and well that we uh, a lot of times just fail to realize. Right. And there is amazing passages that we've touched on a little bit in Daniel where Daniel prays for three weeks. And when Daniel's praying, we get this insight that there's an angel that finally gets to him and says, hey, I would have got to you earlier, but the prince of the power of Persia I was in, I was fighting them. Yeah. And, and, and you kind of, a little, a little open up of the veil. Right. Right. Of behind the scenes, behind yeah. the scenes, countries having a, some kind of demonic principality, principality behind, behind them. And then you get into the new Testament where the new Testament in the book of Ephesians talks about, you know, that our warfare is not between flesh and blood, but, and then it gives us list powers, principalities, yeah. you know, rulers. Spiritual force of wickedness in heavenly places. Yeah, this kind of, and, and it seems like Paul is very good. He could have just said, hey, it's a lot of wickedness, but he doesn't. He, he lists out. It's organized it's wickedness. It's organized <laughs> wickedness. Yeah. That's right. So, so, you know, what is restraining all of that wickedness, all of that world from having its parade day, if you will, on this planet. And 
Um, you know, a lot of us in the world, we don't look at God and go, we're not thankful for just what, what theologians would call the common graces. Right. Just the common graces that we have. Yeah. And the tribulation period is definitely a, a lifting up of not just, not just a, 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 of God removing himself from, say, water, uh, uh, you know, good sources of water, or green land, grass, green or grass, things like that. Yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's also an, uh, an unveiling of a world that we have been, in a lot of ways, sheltered to. Yeah, there's a famous line uh, that this world is as close as a sinner will ever get to heaven because we do see the, the restraining work, and we still see, although it's marred, it's not destroyed, the glory of God and the creation. Yeah. But it's also as close as a saint is ever going to get to hell mm -hmm. because of the, uh, the fallenness of, of man that, uh, that dominates here. So God, in a sense, incrementally, we see in the book of Revelation, is pulling back yeah. uh, and saying, you want it, you got it. Yeah. You know, with the first part of Revelation chapter 9, these demonic locust-like creatures, mm -hmm. people were afflicted, but they didn't die. Right. As we get into the second half of Revelation chapter 9, we're going to see some angels come on the scene that raise up an army that's not going to be limited. No. Uh, yeah, so it says, The sixth seal, or six angels sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the river, at the great river Euphrates. Boy, there, there. <laughs> there is there's a really significant uh, insight here that if you don't follow our, our, our advice that we are trying to really communicate to you in this study of Revelation, that you can't understand the last book of the Bible without understanding the previous 65 books of the Bible, this is another classic example of all of this, because we can just look at this and say, oh, you know, there's a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, yada, 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 oh, I want to get onto this 200 million man horseman and all the crazy things are going to do and, and so on. But, whoa, partner, really significant that this particular judgment, the six angels sounding, brings forth a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now, this is a whole Bible study in of itself. You who are uh, budding Bible students out there, if you really want to find out about this golden altar, it's described in Exodus chapter 30. And there were two altars that were in the tabernacle of God, later in the temple of God, that God had set up for worship. One was what was called the brazen altar, or the altar of sacrifice, and that's where sin offerings would be presented before God. But there was another altar called the golden altar, which would be used for prayer offerings before God. It was incense offering. Let my prayer rise like incense before you, uh, King David said. May the lifting of my hands be as the evening sacrifice. And so this picture of the golden altar here is not an altar in which sacrifice for sin would take place. It was a place of intense intercession. It was also a place where people could find mercy. Because notice it talks about the, uh, the, the golden altar here, which is before uh, the, the throne of God, and a, a voice from the four horns of the golden altar came. You know, if you, say, had committed a crime, maybe you had committed manslaughter or something like that, an accidental death, 
and someone was coming to get you, if you made it to the tabernacle and were able to lay hands on one of the horns of this incense altar, it was hands off of you. They couldn't touch you. They couldn't uh, have their way with you. It was kind of like golly, golly, outs and free. You know, you, you know, you, 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 you got back. You got over the line playing capture the flag spiritually. But you could hold on to this horn of the altar and find forgiveness. Now, notice forgiveness, relationship with God, but also this idea of connecting with God through prayer. Why does this voice come from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God? Now, some people will say, well, uh, this is uh, the voice of God talking uh, about here, saying to the sixth angel, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Maybe it could very well be, it could be the echo of that prayer that was prayed in Revelation chapter 6 the prayers of the tribulation martyrs being reflected through this and being answered in its proper time, not a minute too early, not a minute too late. And I think this is such a key thing to keep in mind as we see the rest of this. Because when we see this in the context of an answer to prayer before God, you know, and whether the voice is from God, some people say, well, God heard the prayer and then spoke through, you know, this reverberation on this golden altar that was there in the present. You know, whichever way you want to come down on it, you know, it's open to that kind of speculation. But suffice it to say, what is about to take place here is proof of an old adage that you've probably heard in a lot of sermons. There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. God answers every prayer. Every prayer you've ever prayed, God answers it. He reserves the right to answer in one of three ways. Yes, no, or wait. And in this situation, the waiting, and you see that these tribulation saints, these martyrs, these people that have paid for their lives, uh, the, the, the brutality that the Antichrist has unleashed on the earth, are finally getting their prayers answered at this point. And it's like God has said, not yet, not yet, not yet. Here we go. And boy, when he says, here we go, it gets pretty intense, doesn't it? It, it does. And, and just so you know, in chapter 8, 2, in verse 3, it says, another angel having a golden censer. Now, this golden censer was a part of what you're talking about. Right. It was part of that same furniture item that had the four horns on it. Right. And had the incense. Right. And, and it says, uh, it, uh, this angel stood at the altar, which was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. So this is a theme yeah. that we're seeing, yeah. this, this idea of answering prayer, meeting God at the place of mercy. Yeah. I kind of like that idea. Yeah. You know, that where does God meet us? At the place of mercy. Yeah. You know, and he, he answers prayer at the place of mercy too. Yeah, and when know? we come to him on the basis of mercy, yeah. we find mercy. That's right. On the other side of the coin, if we come to God with the idea, well, all I want from God is what's coming to me. Right. Oh, you know, God's uh, really just. Why, you know, does this and this and this happen? You know, boy, whenever people say things like that, I always wonder what the safe distance for lightning strike is. Mm -hmm. Because if we got what was coming to us, we'd all be fried at this point. We'd all be charcoal briquettes. Yeah. But here we see this answer to this mm -hmm. radical prayer taking place. And it's incremental. Obviously, in the first part of chapter 9, boy, you talk about a wake-up call. 
um, okay, you want to play footsie with the powers of darkness? Here's the powers of darkness. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to get any more. You thought that was bad. You thought five months of <laughs> agony is bad. Here you go. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, why are these four angels yeah. bound at the great river Euphrates? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but what I find super fascinating about it is that, first of all, they're bound. Yes. And so it's interesting that the four angels, there's always a question of, is this for good angels? Or, but you go, well, how can good angels be bound? You know, yeah. it, and when you, and you, so when we look at the Bible, we look at other passages to help us kind of understand a passage that might seem a little vague. Yeah. And so we look in the book of like, say, second Peter yeah. chapter two. Yeah. And that has a, a really interesting passage about angels. Yeah. If God did not spare the angels, this is second Peter two and verse four, who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Yeah, so we're talking about angels, Yeah. but they ain't good ones. Right. Right, the ones have, that are reserved, cast to hell, that obviously something's wrong, right? Yeah, they, and, and this is kind of a trippy thought, because we know, mm -hmm. because Jesus interacted with fallen angels, demons, that were running loose, say, at the area of the Gadarenes and so forth, and the other demonic encounters that, that Jesus had, we know there are angels that are allowed to run loose on this world. Right. But we also know that there's some fallen angels that are so bad, they're not allowed to run loose. Yeah, what a, what a, what a mind blower yeah, right there. And, 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 you know, we ask, well, what's the difference? And I've got an answer. I don't know. <laughs> all, all I know is much is required, who much is given. Maybe these were angels of a higher order, a higher rank that had more exposure to the glory of God so that they were, you know, again, held to a higher standard. Maybe because God creates angels with different levels of power or abilities and so on. Uh, perhaps uh, these are more potent fallen angels uh, who could really wreak down. We really don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was thinking of another passage that talked about angels that left their proper abode. Yeah, in Jude. In yeah. Jude. Yeah. You know, again, another group of angels that seem to have done something that was so bad that they now are in this place of, of if you will, prison. Yeah. Demon prison. Yeah. And so, and then it says the great river Euphrates. So release the four angels who are bound. It's an answer to prayer. I love that idea. God's saying, okay, I am going to answer the prayer of the saints. Right. You know, remember the world. This isn't a jailbreak in other words. Right. Right. <laughs> so. And, and so here it says the great river Euphrates and Euphrates has a big history throughout the Bible. Specifically in one major city located on the Euphrates River. Which is what? Babylon. Okay. And, uh, and you know, when we take a look at the history of Babylon, uh, we begin to discover that Babylon uh, was the place of the first organized rebellion against God. Uh, we discover that uh, at the Tower of Babel, obviously. It was also a place... Uh, where idolatry, in a sense, was invented and perfected. Uh, it was a place where we see uh, God's people uh, brought into exile. It was a place of judgment and so on. Uh, very 
key place yeah. in a sense. A military it, kind of strategic place, right? Separating the East and the West. Yeah, I mean, in, in a physical sense, but even yeah. in, in terms of biblical history, yeah. Babylon seems to have a consistent track record of being a center point of rebellion against God. Yeah, can I read yeah. uh, Revelation 18 too? Man, really says some gnarly <laughs> stuff. It says, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Now remember, the Euphrates is right there. Right. And it says, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a, pr a prison for every foul soul. Remember this, these angels are holding right. this horde, if you will, uh, from how, this demonic horde from going nuts. And every foul spirit in a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Bird's usually a bad uh, kind picture of, a of picture. something that's unclean. Yeah, yeah. something unclean. Yeah. Um, but there you see that that reference to Babylon and demons um, again in the Book of Revelation. Yeah, and, and so you know, is this the fact that these four angels are at a specific point? On the river Euphrates, if we went to, say, see the ruins of ancient Babylon, which uh, Iraq is still working on restoring uh, and, and making into a centerpiece of uh, pan-Arabic pride in the region, uh, if we were to go there, would we run into these angels? Would they actually be there at Babylon? Possibly. Will we see them? Probably not, because they can't manifest themselves Tell God says so. Now notice, uh, we're told in verse 15, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Mm. Now, the, the, the point of emphasis here, I think, is really interesting. They were prepared for the hour and day and month and year. Now, some people say, well, that means that it'll be like a year and a month and uh, an hour or so for them to do their job of wiping out a third of mankind. The language here doesn't seem to indicate that. Uh, the language seems to indicate that not a second too early are these angels going to be released to do their thing. It's going to happen precisely in a pinpointed way only when God allows it to happen. Now notice when they're released, they're going to do some serious damage. They're going to kill a third of mankind. Now, if you're keeping score at home, we know that in the seal judgments, a quarter of mankind has already been wiped out. Now you have a third of mankind. For those of you who were sleeping in math class, that means that seven-twelfths of humanity has now been wiped out, or a little over half of humanity has died in this tribulation period. Now, how they die is pretty intense, isn't it? Yeah, it says the number, um, now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million, I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, I don't know how to pronounce Hyacinth. It. Hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouth came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and brimstone, which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouths, 
and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Whoa. Okay. Late great planet Earth, Hal yeah. Lindsey. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, I, that's what <laughs> I first remember when yeah. I... <laughs> Hal Lindsey kind of went, went nuts on this. You know, he said, well, you know, the number of the horsemen was 200 million. Uh, you know, literally, uh, the, the, the language puts it this way, twice times 10,000 times 10,000, or 200 million, if you, you do the math. Um, there are those good Bible commentators who say this is just a broad strokes way of saying uh, more than you can count, uh, just a, a horde beyond number. Other people believe that it's very specific. In 1965, uh, for instance, the uh, Red Army of China boasted that they now had an army of 200 million men. Uh, when you take a look at the uh, Silk Road project, restoration project that China is busy doing uh, through uh, the northern area around India, uh, getting into skirmishes and fights with uh, the Indian army on a semi-regular basis. We don't really hear a whole lot about that because it doesn't really interest us on this side of the world. But uh, China and India uh, are two burgeoning economic superpowers. And for those of you uh, who are not aware, India is a nuclear superpower. They have nuclear weapons, and so does China. Uh, and uh, China's great desire is to extend their influence beyond just the East, especially into the Middle East. And uh, when we start to see, for, for instance, the Silk Road project building a major highway uh, through southern China, northern India, the Himalaya areas around there, Nepal, and so forth, uh, you, you have to ask, okay, why are they doing this? You know, it's not because they couldn't just FedEx goods uh, if we're just interested in trade. It's far more than trade that is just involved here. If China is able to complete this Silk Road project, as it looks like they're going to be able to do, uh, boy, they can suddenly become an 800-pound, not only economic, but military guerrilla in the entire Middle East. Uh, when we take a look at, uh, you know, China getting involved with various nations in Africa on one side of Israel and in the Middle East uh, as far as uh, economic aid and so on, uh, we do see that China is making these kind of inroads. So are we talking about a literal 200 million man army? Well, those who take this point of view would point to Revelation 16 and verse 12 where we're getting into the bowl judgments. Here we see the actual battle of Armageddon taking place here. It says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth, and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Uh, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment, lest he walk naked and they see a shame. A little time out from God there. It says, and they gather them together to the place in Hebrew called Armageddon, literally the Valley of Megiddo. And uh, if you go with us on one of our tours of Israel, uh, one of the things that you see is this area uh, called Megiddo down there. It's called Megiddo because uh, Solomon built a fortress city there called 
Megiddo. You even go through a tour of Megiddo and just see this amazing, uh, you know, brilliant uh, water system that was built there, this cistern wells that still uh, runs with water today in this place. And this was the, the fortress that Solomon used to control this huge valley down there. Napoleon Bonaparte, when he went to the Middle East, made the comment that looking at the valley of Megiddo, he said all the armies of the world could easily maneuver here for a battle. It, it is a perfect place to have a showdown, if you will. And so when we see this passage in, uh, in, in Revelation 16, it appears that the Euphrates River is going to be dried up. Uh, there's speculation that this might have to do with some of the hydroelectric dam projects they're doing at the headwaters of the uh, Euphrates that uh, go up into Turkey and so forth. Uh, but uh, supernaturally, it's going to be dried up to make way for who? The kings from the east, literally the kings of the rising sun, if you translate it out of uh, the, the original language. So is it a literal 200 million man army that's going to come tromping in for the final battle of Armageddon? Is it a spiritual army? Or there are some who will say, yeah, it's a physical army, but as we're going to see, there's aspects about this army that are decidedly spiritual. Maybe it's a demon-possessed army. And maybe that point of view makes the most sense and takes in all of the data. You know, I'm, I'm really... I'm kind of loath to spiritualize a passage that seems rather specific and numerical in the Bible. 200 million men. And, and it says, and I heard the number of them. It isn't just like, well, it's kind of a metaphor. Look at all those people out there. It says, no, there's 200 million. They're going to go out and yeah, do this and kind saying, of damage. You're saying it could be 200 million demons. Like, is that what you're saying? Or men or men possessed, possessed by, by demons. Possessed by demons. Yeah. And, and so I think for me, anyway, your mileage may vary. I don't think you divvy fellowship over it. Uh, but uh, I think the third alternative is probably the best. Yeah. Uh, 200 million demonically possessed individuals who are coming in with some pretty heavy-duty warfare. Yeah, and, and, and it's kind of weird. 200 million. Like, why so specific, you know, of a number? Yeah. You know, why couldn't it have been something else? You know, why 200 million? Or multitudes million? and multitudes. Yeah, yeah, yeah or, something yeah. like that. And, you know, when I first read this passage again, Scott, I, I went to um, Psalm 68. And I remembered a passage that was referring to Jesus. Um, when Jesus died, he led captivity. Uh, he, he freed those that were captive. Right. Um, and the, the passage just before it was the one that was hitting my mind. And, and, and it says the chariots of God are 20,000. And then it says, even thousands of thousands, 100 million. Right. And I thought, the Lord is among them in Sinai, in his holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with his benefits. And, yeah, and it, it interesting. Just, yeah, and I just thought, man, this is really interesting because Satan, we know in the book of Revelation, is always in this deal of like mimicking God. Right. And, um, you know, that's kind of one of the big themes of the book. And it made me think of like a, a demonic kind of horde of 200 mil. Is, is Satan, is Satan, is like, is he trying to one-up God? Uh, you know, you know, trying to overpower God, thinking he can overpower the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You know, Satan knows the word. 
Right. You know, he knows Psalm 68. Right. You know, he knows these passages. Oh, God has, what, 100 million chariots? Oh, yeah? I got 200 million men, demonic, whatever. Yeah, but it's you interesting know. even in that passage. Yeah. There's a multiplier there. Right. It's when, not just, you know, 10,000 times 10,000. Yeah. It's... 20,000 times 10,000 times 10,000. Yeah. Which is telling us a really important thing we need to understand if you uh -huh. ever get caught into the ooky spookiness of modern spiritual warfare teaching out there, <laughs> where it's, you know, people, demon, demon, who's got the demon? And the demons are doing this, and the demons are doing that. No, we're outnumbered, we're outgunned, we're outgunned. Well, Revelation 12 tells us that, you know, we certainly don't want to underestimate our foe. We're told that when the dragon fell, he drew a third of the stars of heaven with him. Uh, most commentators believe that was the, the notion that a third of the angels followed Satan in his rebellion. They're the demons that we have to deal with in spiritual warfare today. But the wonderful thing is, it tells me two-thirds of the angels didn't fall. You know, that Satan's literally, if we're just talking about angels, outgunned two to one. So even with this 200 million man, yeah. maybe demonically possessed man, maybe it's demons, who knows. Uh, but even with that, Satan's outgunned. As much as he would try to say, hey, I can keep up with the Almighty, see? You know, well, maybe not when it's all said and done. Yeah. But boy, this description, it says, and I saw the horses in their vision, and those who sat on that breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. Satan uh, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. What we've mm. seen, for instance, when the abuso was opened, before the scorpion-like creatures, the locust-scorpion hybrids that do all the damage, the first thing is uh, it was the smoke of the pit. Mm. You know, uh, when we think about fire and brimstone, we think about pictures of judgment. We think about uh, the, the, the ultimate dwelling place, if you will, the resting place of Satan and the false prophet being a, the lake of fire and so on. And so it's almost like uh, hell comes to earth. Yeah, very powerful imagery, right? Yeah. Horses, yeah. lions. Um, you know, beasts that are incredibly strong. Yeah. Now, again, some of the more Hal Lindsey, Chuck Missler set <laughs> would say that this might be an attempt for someone that's living 2,000 years in the past to describe modern weaponry uh, that we would use today. Well, it was kind of, I saw this thing and it was, uh, was kind of like uh, an ox, but it had uh, rotating wheels within wheels on it and a, uh, a long uh, nose that was like a, a pipe. And then, you know, I mean, you'd be talking about a tank, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, just trying to describe it. There's a great Twilight Zone episode where a guy gets thrown into the future out in the Wild West and a truck comes by and he thinks it's some horrible monster, right. you know. And, and so, I mean, it's, uh, it's that picture there. But however this plays out, a third of the world is going to get destroyed by this. The power mm. is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Uh, you know, this picture of, like you say, Satan trying to mimic God, but turning it around, twisting it, 
you know, once again, Jesus pointing to uh, the people of Israel and their wilderness wandering and a foreshadowing of his ministry of delivering us said, as Moses lifted up the fiery serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man might be lifted up. Whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, the deliverance from the plague of the fire adders, or the fiery serpents there, was looking upon this mm. image of healing. But Satan turns it around and makes it into a form of destruction there. It's just mm. a, a very interesting twist. And so it goes on and says in verse 20, but the rest of mankind repented and lived they happily said, oh, Okay, after. that's it. <laughs> Half of mankind's done. We bet on the wrong horse here. We're going to do a 180, right? No, no, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, of their sorcerers, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Wow. Now, notice, they didn't repent first of what? The works of their hands. Mm. What, was, what is so important about that? Well, what's really important about that is this. If you're going to be uh, right with God or to have a relationship with God, there's really only two ways to do it, right? You either have to have a system whereby you, with your feet planted firmly here on planet Earth, by the sweat of your brow and your righteous deeds, build your stairway to heaven. That's one way to try to do it. The other is putting your, realizing that there's no way that I could ever bridge that gap. And unless God has mercy on me, I'm not going to make it. Either it's the works of my hands or the finished work of God that makes me right with God, that gives me eternal life. Mm. You know, when we proceed onward in the book of Revelation, we're going to see there's a one world religious system that's going to dominate in the last days. And I always wonder, how in the world are they going to get all of these various things? How do they get the Muslims and the Buddhists and the, you know, the, I mean, all these different groups that are out there, uh, you know, how are they going to get them all to agree on, on, on one thing? Well, you know, if you reject a relationship with God on the basis of grace through faith, well, there's only one alternative. You put your faith in the work of man's hands. And, and boy, you really want to get into it uh, tooth and nail. Tell a religionist that their religion is worthless as far as making them right with God. They, they are going to just blow a gasket hmm. uh, because it's this pride-generated, uh, self-righteous appeal to really, I think, you know, it's funny. We think the depths of the flesh are indulging the flesh in various bizarre and degrading pursuits of pleasure and so on. But the flesh in its most pure form is this declaration that we can be made right with God based on what we do with our own hands. You know, it just all goes back to that Tower of Babel. We'll build our own tower into heaven. You know, we'll make it reach there. Uh, by the works of our hands. That's the, the religious root of it all. But the other bad fruit is this. You don't repent of the works of your hands. Uh, who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping God? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, it doesn't say so. <laughs> <laughs> it says you're worshiping demons. And this is interesting. Um, 
to me. And I, I see a, a lot of um, humanism within this passage as well, too. Um, you know, in, in the book of Peter, it talks about people in the last days mocking the coming of Christ. Second Peter chapter three. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, where is his coming? Yeah. You know, hasn't everything, hasn't the earth, hasn't everything just gone on its steady stasis forever? Hasn't the sun, you know, and the moon and the, you know, hasn't everything just been the way it always is? Yeah. And, you know, we live in a very humanistic society and world, and even the highly religious have it, this humanism that is just threaded throughout them. Right. You know, that we can do it. And, and that is the, I think, the theme of a lot of the culture today is that through technology, we are going to be able to build a utopian world. And this is what is seen, um, especially in that Charlie Kirk interview with um, the pastor in California, Jack Hibbs, with yeah. Jack Hibbs. Yeah. I mean, they did a great job on, and you guys could YouTube it and find it, Charlie Kirk, uh, Jack Hibbs. But, you know, on go, the Great Reset. On the Great Reset. Yeah. And just the, the people that are involved worldwide, the, the, the people that run and want to run the world, the people who have tons of money, and, and have power in their humanistic philosophies and that they, 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 they desire to run things in a more efficient way through technologies that are coming out today. Um, you know, and, and I see a lot of this going on here, like in this section. I think of, you know, what culture is a culture that is okay with murder, big pharma, you laugh, but it says sorcery. Yeah, pharmakia. That's where Greek. we get pharmakia, right? Yeah. So what societies for murder, big pharma, right? Sexual, Sexual immorality, which is interesting because in First Peter or First Timothy chapter four verse one, sexual immorality is called a doctrine of demons. And it actually is a teaching of abstinence. It is a teaching from abstin abstaining from monogamous. Yeah, it's wrong to be married. It's wrong to eat meat. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's an attack on God's creative way um, of Adam and Eve, one man, one woman for life. And people in the church were teaching, maybe we shouldn't even get married. Let's not, it's better not even to get married. Right. Paul called that a doctrine of demons. Interesting. Heavy. So yeah. a lot of times we think of sexual immorality, our minds go to like red light district, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. But it is, it is, is there a movement in our world that attacks binary male, female marriage? Like it, no other. It, yeah, if, if you're not aware of that, you're <laughs> not paying attention. If you're not aware attention. of that, yeah, that's right. Go to any college campus in the planet, right? I mean, to and the point will, where, mm. not to diverge, right. but um, there's been a huge controversy. I mean, the, the, the White House press secretary, the president himself, commenting on it about a bill that was passed in Florida that simply said, we're not going to have explicit sexual education given to children from the grades of kindergarten through third grade. Right. But and they turn that around to say, oh, 
No, this is the don't say gay bill. Right. You know, this is restricting speech. This is this is horrible. These people are oppressing all that. And look, here's this teenager who's who's, you know, really trying to find himself. And isn't it this teenager isn't even affected by the bill. But when <laughs> this idea of immorality comes up, yeah. anything that gets in the way of that, it's like our culture is like, well, don't ask me to read the bill or, or don't ask me to say, is it reasonable for some stranger to be explaining human sexuality, even deviant forms of sexuality to kindergartners? Don't bring that up. Just say, oh, no, these are horrible, oppressive people. Um, you know, it really starts to sound like what you're talking yeah, about. It, it, yeah. So in my mind, I think of a world that allows, you know, it, like how does this world allow theft? Like how does the world and, you know, the power structures, how, they, how are they going to allow theft? Well, one of the big tenets of the Great Reset is you will have no property. And you'll like it. And you'll like it. <laughs> We're going to take your property. And you're going to be more happy. You know, if people can get rid of your personal property, right? Anything that you personally own, it becomes, now you become... Imagine no possessions, Bo. That's right. It's easy if you can. <laughs> that's right. I didn't like that <laughs> yeah. tune. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's their, their national... Why do you think they play that, by the way, every New Year's Eve? Why is that the first song they play in the new year? Every year on all the networks for New Year's Eve. John Lennon's Imagine. It's the marching orders. It's the national anthem of the Great Reset. Of, of that humanistic, yeah. of, my, of my hand. So, like, in, when I read this, I read, you know, they, you know, they don't want to repent, and we, and, 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 meaning they don't want to have a mind change. They don't want to change their mind on the way the world is doing its thing. The world loves its murder. That's, sure, how many abortions have been in China alone over the last 50 years. Yeah. That number is unreal. I mean, I was looking that one up the other day and it was just yeah. mind-boggler. Yeah. You know, you take that worldwide. Does murder happen? Is it, it's not just it doesn't just happen, but this is a world that seems to be parading in it. Yeah, in, in, um, endorsing and embracing it. Yeah, and, it and, and and you know, again, we we kind of run out of time here. But I guess to sum all this up, you know, it, it is Exodus all over again, isn't it? Yeah. Because even after, you know, I mean, seven-twelfths of the world is gone, right? And has been gone in not a way that you could ever explain naturally or through evolutionary process or <laughs> anything else like that. I mean, the demons are definitely getting involved with all of this and, and taking out swaths of humanity and so on. They still don't repent, right? But... That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it, though, is this. Even if these people don't get the message, God got the message. What message? The message that was sent way back in Revelation chapter 6. The prayers of his people saying, God, how long till you judge? And the thing I really want to leave you guys with, because this is the so what in all of this. I mean, you talk about all these wild creatures and 200 million men and, you know, helicopters versus, you know, like, <laughs> But here's the, here's the so what in, in, in all of this. Do you have anyone in your life who's really hurt you badly? I mean, maybe spitefully. Maybe has just taken you to the cleaners, you know, ripping you off. Maybe has done you serious, serious damage. And you can't say it wasn't personal. It was very personal. 
you know, there's two ways to try to deal with this. You can say, I don't think God knows what he's doing. So I'm going to take this into my own hands. And I'm either going to get angry when I see that person prospering or not getting what I think they deserve, or I'm going to get bitter and turn my back on God because I just don't think he's judging properly. You can do that. Or you can say, well, wait a minute. These people that were martyrs, you got to have a pretty good faith if you're a martyr, right? Mm -hmm. Laying down your life for Jesus. Mm -hmm. They weren't unspiritual people. They called out to God and said, how long, O Lord? Just like the psalmists of old with their imprecatory psalms and so forth. But they were on to something. Instead of taking things into their own hands, they said, God, you're a righteous judge, and we're not. And you know exactly what you're doing. I love the fact that this demonic horde isn't released until the day and the hour and the month and the year that God says so. You know, it just reminds me of that classic scene from Braveheart where Mel Gibson is going, hold, hold, and then finally go, you know. I mean, that's exactly how God deals with this. And, and you know, it always just brings me back to uh, a passage that I think will really change your life and, and save you a lot of Malok's moments. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, it says, Repay no one evil for evil. Romans 12. Right? Yeah, Romans 12, I should say. I'm sorry about that. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll keep coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the most important days of growth in my entire Christian experience was the day that the Lord finally got through to me with a very simple statement. And I think it was a sermon I heard by John Corson where it was said, it's my job to judge him. It's your job to love him. And I'll give you the power to do that if you ask. In the right moment, at the right time, God will judge the ungodly. And as we can see here, mm. he's really, really good at it. Mm. Really, I mean, I'm sure that even the saints, tribulation saints in heaven, were probably going, whoa, man. We prayed that prayer. We see that altar, the golden altar, the place of prayer, the incense censer in Revelation chapter 8, the prayers of the saints. And man, when God responds to those prayers, it's a powerful thing. Mm. The fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. So if someone's hurt you deeply, understand, some people will say uh, getting healthy is the best revenge. I'd say getting holy is the best revenge. Mm. Giving these things over into the hands of God and letting him be the one mm. who settles out, whether you're worried about the Illuminati or the, the World Economic uh, federation or, you know, I mean, all these different things we can get caught up with and, and just get our, our bile going. Give it into the hands of God. Even people who hurt you personally and deeply, give it into the hands of God mm. and know that as you do, God is going to take away the power that these people have over you mm. to make you bitter, to make you worried, to make you anxious, to rob you of your peace. Don't let anyone 
take God's place. Mm -hmm. And that means being honest. It means praying like David did in Psalm 139, mm -hmm. but it means bringing it to God mm -hmm. and bringing it to his golden altar in heaven and leaving it there and saying the right moment, the right day, the right month, the right year, the books are going to be balanced. Mm -hmm. But also try to work in a smidgen of this while you're at it. You say, Lord, you've been so gracious to me. Be gracious to them too. Father, thank you that you love us, and thank you for this wild passage in Revelation. Lord, uh, as we see this world going crazy, I'm just reminded again of that, uh, that statement that was shared at the, the Calvary Pastors Conference on Prophecy. It was Skip Heitzig who said it, Lord, that this world isn't falling apart. It's falling together. We're starting to see all these things come online and, and become more and more reasonable and realistic as time goes on. But Lord, knowing that the time is short, knowing that the days are, are, are fewer now than when we first believed, and we'll see you first. Lord, we want to live like that. God, I, I pray that you'd search our hearts tonight, and if there's bitterness, if there's anger, if there's resentments that we have covered up and just put in a boiling pot with a heavy lid on it, uh, I pray, Father, that we would bring that to you and say, Lord, turn down the flame. I, I give this to you. I know you do all things well, including judging others. You're the judge of all the earth. I'm not. And so as I give these things to you, these people, maybe places, things that have hurt us deeply, uh, we pray that you would replace that bitterness and that anxiousness with your peace and with your love, and that we could live on a higher plane than what the world begs us to do. God, thank you that uh, even in this picture of judgment, we see your mercies so beautifully portrayed. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.